Um, Anna, Hope and I, uh, so Anna and Hope are my two daughters, they're sat here at the front, um, we're currently watching through uh, The Mentalist. I'll have mentioned it before um, during my times at Grace Church. I will undoubtedly mention it again because it turns out having started watching it, there's basically an infinite number of episodes. So I'm not sure I will ever finish it. So all of my, all of my illustrations for the rest of my life are going to be coming from The Mentalist, I think. Um, but... Uh, let, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about one of the episodes I was watching this last week. The, the hero of The Mentalist is this uh, detective called Patrick Jane, who is basically a Sherlock Holmes figure. He turns up, he looks at crime scenes, and he instantly goes, oh, it was this and it was that, and this is what's going on, and, and all that thing, you know, just, just through the power of observation. But I was watching an episode this week, and the episode starts with this shocking scene. You have Patrick Jane being escorted out of his office at gunpoint by none other than his boss. And you think, what's going on here? Because his boss is a character who you've grown to like and respect throughout the season. She, is, she seems principled, she seems kind, she seems to know how to deal with Patrick Jane. And so you have this scene at the beginning of this episode where Patrick Jane has like a shotgun to the back of his head and, and his boss is escorting him out of the, the building while all these other cops are like standing down. And you think, what on earth is going on here? And then he does that classic kind of uh, film trick thing where it then flashes to 36 hours earlier. And you, then you get the story of how did you end up in that situation. You start with the situation, you think, what on earth could have happened that could have led to this position? And then, in that theatrical trick, you tell the story of how you ended up at that moment. I want to do a similar thing with Hosea 2 and 3 uh, this week. Um, because Hosea 3 represents the final bit of the narrative about the Hosea and Gomer story in this entire book. So the narrative of Hosea and Gomer's life is made up of chapter one and these five verses in chapter three. That, that's the story. And just remember where we got to in chapter one. So if you've never read Hosea before, or if you weren't here last week, or if you've just forgotten everything that was said last week, let me just remind you where we got to in, in chapter one. So Hosea, this prophet of God, is called to marry a prostitute, which is an odd request for God to make of a prophet. Uh, it's not one of his normal requests. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's unique. Um, and so he, he says to Hosea, I want you to go and marry this prostitute called Gomer. And so they marry, and Gomer then has three children. And the, the chapter is basically about the dramatic names that these children are given. So one of them is named Jezreel after a massacre. The next one is called Not Loved. And the next one is called Not My People. These are like striking names. They're, they're, they're meant to be living reminders of how God is viewing what's going on in Israel at the time. And so that's kind of where we got to at the end of chapter one. So at the end of chapter one, you have this odd family, Hosea, Gomer, these three children with weird names. And then in chapter three, you, you join the Hosea-Gomer story again. Let me read uh, chapter three uh, to you now. It's on page 902. The Lord said to me, this is to Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Yeah, I've been enjoying that. <laughs> um, anyway, let's carry on. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. 
Then I told her, you are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Okay, so we're... So, Imagine we're, we're, in, we're in the episode I've just designed. Uh, so we're, we're at the end of the Hosea Goma story. And at the beginning of the episode, the camera sh- shoots to a slightly grimy scene. You've got Hosea in this room, maybe on this side of the room. On the other side of the room, you've got Goma and this other guy who you've never met before. And, and, and she's over there with him and Hosea's here. And Hosea ends up giving this other guy money, or in this case, kind of goods, in order to buy back Goma, in order to release Goma from whatever hold this man has over her, so that Goma is free to go back with Hosea. This is the start. And you, and you think, wait a minute, how, how have we ended up here? Like, what on earth has happened that has led to a scene where Hosea is having to buy Goma back from another man? What, what on earth has gone on after chapter 1? Because the last we saw Hosea, yes, he's married this prostitute and this new family's been established and they're three odd, with their three oddly named children. And it's weird, but it's hopeful. There's some hope in it. It wouldn't be easy, but there's a fresh start for Goma. Hosea has loved her and accepted her. And he's committed to loving her. And, and so how has it all blown up? How, how did that family break down? What happened between chapter 1 and chapter 3. And of course, in, in shocking news, what happened was chapter 2. Um, so, we're going to get into chapter 2 and, and think, what, what has led us to this situation that we find uh, in this, in this um, book? Here, here's what I, want you to, what I want to encourage you to do as I read through um, Hosea 2, bit by bit. Um, I want to encourage you to sit back and listen... And allow yourself to feel. That's the, the most important thing I want you to do during this. It, it, you'll, be, you'll be easy to zone out because it's not language that we're used to. It's not the kind of thing we're used to reading or we're used to listening to. So it'll be easy to just lose concentration, to drift, to think about something else. Try not to do that. Try to stay with it. And then just try to feel the emotions of this book. Because the swings in emotion in Hosea are absolutely extreme. And in some ways, that is the point of the book of Hosea. Hosea is a book which is meant to make us feel. So let let me encourage you as I read it. Don't zone out. Allow yourself to feel those deep emotions of these words. We're going to start chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 2 to 4. This is where the chapter begins. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. One of the questions we ask as we read Hosea and we're going to repeatedly come back to is, are we talking about Goma here, or are we talking about Israel? 
Now, that's one of the questions you've got to continually be asking yourself because the imagery is so tight. And at times it's not clear whether we're talking about how Gomer has treated Hosea and how Hosea feels about Gomer or about how Israel has treated God and God feels about Israel. It's just not clear. Like, which one are we talking about? It could be either and it could be both. Because what we see in Gomer, we see in Israel. That, that is the point. So at every point, this is what I want you to do. At every point, I want you to be asking yourself this question. Is this describing how I treat God? That's the question I want you to ask yourself this afternoon. Is what is being described here describing how I treat God? And then the second question, is this how God views me? Okay, they're, they're the two questions I think Jose invites us to ask. Is this how I am treating God? Is this how God views me? So I said we were going to look at what's gone wrong in the marriage from, to lead us to chapter three. Uh, and first we are presented with the anger of the husband. That's where this starts. That's what, what is in those verses, verses 2 to 4 that I've just read. Verses 2 to 4 present us with a wounded husband. A husband who, when presented with his wife's adultery, is cut deep. He wants to have nothing to do with her. He wants others to rebuke her. He seems to be even appealing to his children, saying, you rebuke her. You call her out on it. He wants to renounce and disown her. He wants her to feel the pain that she has caused him. To know the shame. And in verse 4, he even wants to distance himself from anything that reminds him of her. I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with anyone who reminds me of you. Now, it's worth remembering that this is poetry designed to help us feel the pain and anger of the husband. I don't think he's actually proposing a Game of Thrones-style walk of shame here. What he's trying to communicate is something about how deeply wounded and hurt he is at the way his wife has treated him. But, but here's what I want you to see. As you read those verses, those extreme verses... A husband who loves his wife could not be anything other than wounded and angry if his wife scorned his love and played around with other men. Imagine a husband who, who didn't respond like this. Imagine a, a husband who just went, yeah, my wife does ignore me and she does neglect me and she does kind of play around with other guys. But hey, you know, you win some, you lose some. You wouldn't look at that person and go, there's someone who deeply loves their wife. You wouldn't say, there is someone who is committed to their marriage. That wouldn't be how a loving husband would respond to that situation. There's no way it is. And it's just, we've got to remember that because it's popular in our culture to think that if God loves us, he won't be angry with us. But that's clearly not true. Like a jilted husband, it is precisely because of the depth with which God loves us that he finds our neglect of him, our mistreatment of him, our humiliation of him so upsetting. If he didn't love us, then he wouldn't care. But it's precisely because he does. How could God not be angry as he sees us hurting him, hurting ourselves and trampling over something as precious to him as his marriage? 
That's the question we're being forced to ask in these verses. Of course, this is how a husband would re- react to that. So of course, that is how God is going to react if that is the way we treat him. So, so this, this section starts with the anger of the husband, which obviously begs the question of what on earth could the wife have done to prompt such anger? Th- these deep emotions that are described in those verses. What could she have done that was so bad that has led him to react like that? And that's what we've presented within verses 5 to 13. So again, Hosea chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 5 to 13. Just, just feel the emotions of this passage. This is, this is the section that most clearly presents the sins of the wife. If the first bit is the anger of the husband, the second bit is the sins of the wife. Let me, let me read them to you. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my corn when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bars. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. What is it that the wife has done which has caused this pain and anger in the husband? Well, the pictures in that little passage I just read are are dramatic and shocking, but they primarily describe one pattern of behaviour. Here's the situation which I think is being described. Let me me see if I can illustrate. Imagine that I am married to Sarah. You actually don't have to imagine that because... I am married to Sarah. Um, Sarah's the, the one over here. But, but we're, we're married. Now, now you're going to have to do some imagining. Imagine that I give Sarah a precious gift. Now, that, that takes more imagination. Um, I, I, I racked my brain to think, what are the precious gifts that I've given Sarah in my life? But let, let me take one as an example. Let me take um, an engagement ring. So the engagement ring, the moment when I asked Sarah to marry me, and I gave her an engagement ring. Take that as an example. Now imagine that she starts cheating on me with some other guy. But, but the imagery goes further. Okay? Imagine if she took that engagement ring and she wore it every day. And she paraded it before people, showing them it every, every single day. But everyone she talked to about it, she said, oh, this was given to me by my new lover. The, the ring that I'd given her... She was going around saying, oh, this was given to me by that guy, this guy who I'm now seeing. Imagine that. How would I feel about that? How would 
What would that say about the kind of person that Sarah would be, about how she would treat me if that was a situation that she did? Or, or, or to take a different scenario, imagine she took that ring, that engagement ring, and she, she gave it to her other lover and said, this is a sign of my love for you. The ring that I've given her is a sign of my love for her. She has now taken and given to a man who obviously has very thin fingers um, and, and, and said, this is a sign of the love I have for you. Imagine if she did that. How would that make me feel? Because that is precisely the situation being described in verse 8. You can see it there. She has not acknowledged that it was I, I was the one who gave her the grain and the new wine and oil, who lavished on her silver and gold. gold. And what did they do with it? Which they used for Baal, for this other lover. They took the stuff that God had given them and they said, this is, didn't come from God. They didn't acknowledge that it came from God. And they said, and they then used it to give to someone else. Or, or, or let me give you another situation which is described in this passage. Imagine if she was destitute. You know, she'd left me, she'd abandoned me, she was with this other guy, but she was destitute. And every day, out of the kindness of my heart, I went out and bought clothing and food for her. But imagine if she then took that food and clothing back to this other guy and claimed that it was hers. And more than that, claimed that she had earned it. Oh, I've earned this and so I'm bringing you back this food and clothing that I've earned myself. That's the situation being described in verse 12. She takes her vines and fig trees and says that they were paid from her lovers, despite the fact that God gave them to her. How many days would she do that before I would say, wait a minute, I'm not going to buy her food and clothing anymore so that she can take it back and say, I earned this. How many days could I take the insult of everyone being told that the engagement ring I gave her was actually from someone else? How long could I take that level of deliberate, ongoing rejection and humiliation before I could say, like the husband in verses 2 to 4, I want nothing to do with this woman? That is the situation being described in these verses. Now, as I said at the start, the question is, at what point in that section did we stop talking about Gomer and start talking about Israel? Because it's unclear. At some point, it's a woman and her lovers, and then all of a sudden, it's a nation who's sacrificing to Baals or forgetting the Lord. Why do we go over so much? Why, why, why do we dot around all that time? Why is it sometimes hard to tell? Well, it's because the parallels between Gomer and the people are so tight that, it's that they could apply to both of them. How this wife treats her husband is extreme. It's not just adultery, it's insult and exploitation and humiliation and deceit. But the point that Hosea is making is this is how people treat God. This is how we treat God. We take the stuff God gives us, so we take the life he gifted us, the world he created, the opportunities he gives them, and what we do is we present them to other lovers. We take these things and we use them to pursue the other things that we love. We use them to pursue money or fame or comfort or relationships or other gods. But we don't acknowledge that those things in the first place were gifts from God. We take the stuff God gives us, but we don't acknowledge that they came from him. Instead, we claim that they came from our family or our employers or our country or our friends. Or, perhaps more commonly, we take the stuff God gives us our intellects, our abilities, our bodies, and we claim that we've earned those things by our own hard work. 
We worked hard or we worked smart. And that's why we have the things that we have. We take the daily provision God makes for us, the breath he gives us, the food he provides us with, the people he puts in our lives, and we claim that it is ours, that we have earned it, never acknowledging that it comes from him. How long will it take before God says, enough is enough? Before God says, all this stuff which I provide, but which you claim you actually earned. All this stuff I gave you, but which you claim came from other gods or other people. All this stuff which I give you, which you use to pursue other loves. How long will it be before he says, I'm just going to stop providing all that stuff? How long before God takes his engagement ring back? How long before he stops giving us food and clothing? How long would I put up with this from my wife? How long should God put up with this from his people? That's the question of Hosea 2. That's the situation by verse 13. It's pretty bleak. The marriage is over. Gomer has repeatedly cheated on and humiliated Hosea. And Hosea has been beyond generous and forgiving. But surely now enough is enough. Time for him to call quits on the whole thing. If Gomer doesn't want him, then time to let her go. Similarly, we have repeatedly taken God's stuff but refused to acknowledge him. We've humiliated and wounded him. And God has, day in, day out, continued to provide, continued to forgive. But surely now enough is enough. If we don't want him, surely God should just cut us loose. That's where he got to by verse 13. The horrendous way this wife treats this husband, the anger of the husband is meant to shine a light on the horrendous way that human beings have treated God and how God rightfully feels about the way we've treated him. That's where you've got to by verse 13. But that's not how the husband is going to respond. Look at verse 14 to 23 with me. Therefore, I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyard and will make the Valley of Acor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from this land so that they all may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to, one, to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people and they will say, you are my God. I mean, just Wow. As you read that, the response of this jilted husband, if you're not saying, wow, how could someone respond like that? Then you need to just go home and you need to read this chapter every day until you are. 
What a response. The husband here says, you have humiliated me, embarrassed me, wounded me, and rejected me. You couldn't have made it clearer that you want nothing to do with me. And so this is what I'm going to do. I am going to allure you. The husband is going to romance his wife. He's going to take them to a place where they had their first date. And he's going to whisper sweet nothings into her ear. He's going to shower her with gifts. He's going to take her to a place of safety. He's going to commit himself to her forever. He is going to show her his love. Until, in response to all of this, by verse 16, she calls him her husband and he calls her his wife. Until in verse 23, he calls them his people and they call him their gods. That is the beautiful image of Hosea 2. The husband is not going to force the wife back. He's not going to say, look, you committed to this. So sorry, you've just got to come back. He's not going to do that. No, he's not going to demand that she does what she promised she'd do. He's instead going to commit to winning her back. He's going to love her and he's going to love her so hard that eventually she returns. And he's going to win her back until she loves him just as he loves her. That's how God is going to treat you. You have rejected, ignored and humiliated him. You've taken his stuff and claimed it was your own. You've taken his stuff and you've used it to run away from him and pursue other things success and pleasure and money and relationships you couldn't have made it clearer that you don't love God and so what is God going to do he's going to show his love for you he's going to allure you he's going to show you how he loves you until you can't help but love him back he's not going to force you back he's going to win you back And I guess the the question is, how is God going to do that? What's God going to do that is going to win people who have run away after other gods, who said, we don't want you, we want your stuff, but we don't want you. How is he going to win them back? Well, in Hosea, we're presented with this emotionally conflicted husband, a husband who on the one hand is rightly angry at the way he's been treated by his wife, this wife that he loves. But on the other hand, he loves his wife and is committed to winning her back. How can these two elements of his character, these two responses come together? It often feels in Hosea that we have this slightly schizophrenic God. You know, there's nothing between verse 13 and verse 14. You know, all of a sudden, in verse 13, he's gone from... Uh, you know, kind of, I will punish her for the days to verse 14. I'm going to allure her. You're like, what happened? What happened between those two verses? What is it that God's going to do to win these people back, to win his wayward wife back? This is what God's going to do. He's going to become one of us. He's going to tie his fate to the very people who have treated him so badly. And then as he goes to the cross, he is going to experience what it feels like to find the God who has provided you with everything, say, I'm not going to provide that anymore. He's going to experience what it feels like for God to parade him naked in front of everyone. He's going to experience what it is to be thirsty and parched. He's going to experience what it 
feels like to be slain. He is going to experience what it feels like to have thorns pressed into his skin. He is going to experience what it feels like for God to say, enough is enough and to withhold his goodness from him. As Jesus hangs on that cross, naked, humiliated, thirsty, suffering and dying, as he knows what it is for God to forsake him, to finally say, I'm not going to give you anything anymore. At that moment, he experiences the anger of the jilted husband. But at that moment, God is also going to show us the depth of his love for us. In that moment, he's going to show us his love. His love which is so ferociously for us that he will suffer pain and death and humiliation for us. At the cross, God will say, I love you so much that I will do this for you. At the cross, God allures us. He says, there is nothing you could do that will stop me loving you. There is nothing you have done which I will not forgive. At the cross, he says, you are my people and I love you. And he invites you to respond by saying, this is my God whom I love. At the cross, he says, this is how much I love my wife. And he invites us to say, how could I not love a husband who loves me like that? The husband of Hosea is the God of the cross. And the question is, how long will we keep abandoning him and cheating on him with others before we see just how much he loves us and allow that to grow in us a deep love for him? How long will it take before we are willing to respond to God's love and finally call him my husband and my God? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that in your word we see ourselves. We get a light shone on our own hearts on how we have responded to the God who loves us. And Lord God, sometimes that feels like a dark place to be. But I thank you that your word doesn't end with our darkness, but rather with your light and with your love. Father God, I thank you that we don't only in, our, in your word see ourselves, but we also see you. We see the depths with which you love us. We see the depths that you've gone to for us. And in that we find... A God who allures us, who draws us back to himself. Father God, I pray as we look through Hosea, we would have a better insight into ourselves, a better insight into you. And as a result of that, would love you more and live for you more wholeheartedly. Amen. Let me um, tell you what we're going to do now uh, to